I hope that you have someone in your life uh, like the person I'm, I'm about to describe. I hope that you have someone near and dear to your heart, someone who you love and who loves you, someone who is probably a, a little older, a little wiser, someone who can give you wise counsel, someone who can speak truth into your life, the sort of person who has enough credibility with you that if, if they were to say to you, I don't think you should do that, man, you would consider that seriously and maybe, maybe not go that way. Or the flip side of that would be if they were to come to you and, and, and perhaps challenge you with something that you ought to do, that you would probably do it. And if that person did come to you with such a challenge, and a challenge that sounded something like this, you know, you, you should write a book. And, and not just any book, not whatever happens to come to mind, not a book about gardening or, or sports or business or even about a space trucker. <laughs> Those are great, but not that kind of book. You should write the book for your family. A book that will be passed down for generations. People, in fact, who will not even be born until many, many years after you are dead and gone will still have this book, and they will read this book, and they will take it to heart. It should include family history, and it should definitely include your communication to those future generations about this, this is who we are. This is how we roll. This is, here, here are some of the things that we celebrate and esteem and, and lift up, and here are some things that we stand against and condemn. This is the sort of people we are. And I don't know what your response would be to such a challenge. I know when I hear myself say that out loud, my initial response is, well, I don't want to do that at all. But for the sake of this exercise, let's say you endeavored to do this. I'm going to sit down and write such a book. And if you did, you would have to make some decisions. You would have to decide, well, what's, what's going in the book? And what's not going to make the cut? Now, if we consider that book in your lap right now, Although written by the hands of men, and it certainly was, those men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it is right to say about that book in your lap right now that this is God's book to his family. And unlike what you and, and I might do with such a daunting task, there's no filler material in there. I would probably just put some stuff in there because it seems like this chapter is too short. But God did not do that. Everything in the book is because God interacts with us as a person and he wants his people to have certain information. And if we were honest with ourselves, there's some stuff in there when we're caught in the desert known as numbers, right? Or we're reading a 
a genealogy, we, we, it's easy to start to think, why is this in here? I'm not getting anything. Well, the problem is for sure with the reader, not with the author under those circumstances. So when the, when the spotlight of Scripture swings around and stops on something, we need to understand that God wants us to see this. He's got a reason for this. It's not filler material. Our text this morning is from Luke chapter 2. And before we get there, I want, to, I want you to consider this. There's a crisis presented to us. Then we are taken to a shepherd or the shepherd's field. And then we are presented with or introduced to the rescuer who will deal with the crisis. So if you're a note taker, the crisis, the shepherds, and the rescuer is where we're going to spend a little time before we get to Luke. Let me give you a couple of examples of this pattern. And there are more than, than, a, than two. I'm going to give you two just to explain what I mean and just to illustrate this. But if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus. And Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8, says this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then if you jump down to verse 13, it says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And if we continue to jump down to verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So here we have God's people in the midst of crisis. Some serious crisis. They're in the midst of ethnic oppression. They're in the midst of a, a, a racist, uh, institutionalized slavery. They're even faced with extermination as a people at the hands of the world's superpower. A very great power of the ancient world, and they are not going to be moved by any earthly power. That's the problem for God's people. That's the crisis. And if we were to continue to read what happens in chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. 
Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So whatever it is that's going on in your life right now, and and maybe what's going on is not good. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you're in the midst of your own personal crisis right this second. You need to hear this. God hears. And God remembers his promises to his children. And God sees you. You, Do you know that? That the, the God who breathes stars big enough to consume our solar system sees you. God knows you. He, he knows your name. And I will admit this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it seemed like a one worth taking the time to recognize. So there's a very grave crisis for God's people, and God's people need a rescuer. And we're going to see that There's a biblical pattern here that would suggest that if we need a rescuer, we might want to find a shepherd. And that is exactly where the spotlight of Scripture takes us in chapter 3. It focuses on this man, Moses, a shepherd, and he is tending his father-in-law's flocks when God comes for him. God announces that he will rescue his people from their desperate crisis. And God goes on to tell Moses, oh, by the way, and I'm sending you to go do this. And so now we have not only a a shepherd, but also the rescuer, Moses. He's going to send Moses as his chosen rescuer for his suffering people. Now, We need to understand here that the rescue hasn't happened yet. God's people are still enslaved. They're still being crushed under this brutal, ruthless regime. They're still little baby boys being thrown into the river. But there is a rescuer introduced to us now. And so we have moved from hopelessness to hopefulness. In 1 Samuel chapter 17... The spotlight of Scripture takes us to the Valley of Elah, where we have the Philistine army on one side and the army of Israel on the other side. They're lined up. They're facing each other. And it says this, starting in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, 
and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. God's people have a crisis. You know, one of the things that Hollywood can cause us to do is is to start to think incredibly stupid things. And one of those stupid things that we start to think is, you know, if I was in the Valley of Elah, I would rise to the occasion and I would fight and defeat Goliath and save the day. And that is dumb. Because if you fought Goliath, you would die. And if I fought Goliath, I would surely die. That that conclusion is the point of this big description of this nine-foot-tall giant who's all armored up and just ready to just bring me somebody to kill. You know, that's why that's in there. It's not for you to think, oh, maybe I could do it. God's people need a rescuer. If we keep reading, verse 12, it says, Now David was the son of an Aphrodite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Well, now we have a shepherd on the scene, this youngest of eight, eight boys, David. And if we kept reading, you'll, I'll let you read it on your own, but if we kept reading, we would see that Eliab gets on David's case about not being in the field with his family sheep. You're a shepherd. You should be in the field with the flocks. And in the way that older brothers are known to gently and affectionately address the younger brother, he basically says, you are a bum and a slacker who just doesn't want to work. Go back to the sheep field. That's how he encourages his younger brother. And if we jump down to verse 34, it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered, delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand 
of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I like that. It's like, well, God help you. I'm not going, and, but okay, God help you. Now at this point, Goliath is still, you know, whatever he is, nine feet tall. He's still fully armored. He's still terrifying. He's still alive. But there is now hope because we have a rescuer. There's a crisis, there's a shepherd, and there is a rescuer. Now, we've almost worked our way back to our text for the morning, Luke chapter 2, but before we set up shop and do our our work there, I want to make sure we're clear about what what the crisis is. And in order to do that and to make sure we're all on the same page and we understand that, we need to go one last stop here before we get to Luke, and that is Genesis chapter 3. Now, some of you, perhaps, might, might be familiar with Genesis chapter 3. And if you are, you know that Adam fails miserably and sinfully to protect his family. And Eve listens to the serpent, and they both eat the fruit which was forbidden by God himself. And if we jump in there at verse 7, it says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now here we have the first incident in human history of one person throwing another person under the bus by Adam. And we also have the first incident in human history of some blame shifting by Eve. So we need to recognize that just a few verses before, these were sinless, holy, perfect people. It's not the world we live in now, so it's almost hard to imagine, but they were holy people, and now they are corrupt, shady people. But it gets worse. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary or against your husband." But he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But it gets worse. You don't have to turn there, but in, in Romans chapter five, 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's talking about Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And, and Paul, in this letter to the Romans, he's going to go on um, to write that one trespass, one sin, one violation of God's law, he's talking about Adam's, leads to condemnation for all men. And we are of our father, Adam. We are chips off the old block. The blood of Adam flows through your veins this morning. In other words, you are corrupt, shady people. Now, I am too, but you are corrupt, shady people, just like Adam and Eve. Now, that's not a very Christmassy message. Don't put that on your Christmas card. But we need to understand the crisis. We have the crisis, and it is a bit of a downer. So let's get some good news. One last stop in Genesis 3, verse 15. And in preaching on this a few weeks ago, Ben called this the greatest promise ever made. Amen to that. I couldn't agree more. Here's what it says. This is Genesis 3.15. This is God speaking with that deceiver, the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God here is promising to send a rescuer who's going to fix Adam's mess. I think another way that may be helpful to think about this verse, and in particular those last two lines of this verse, is that this is the thesis statement for the Old Testament. For everything in the Old Testament. Everything. So from Genesis 3.16 to Malachi 4.6, it is all about getting us from this sin-soaked disaster, this crisis of shame and guilt and death to the rescuer who will save God's people. The history and the poetry and the prophecy of the Old Testament is all to get us to the rescuer. Moses and David point us to the rescuer. 
and any other way of reading about Moses and David, I want to say this in love, but I'm going to say it, you're doing it wrong if you're reading it any other way. You know, it has been said, you're not David. Perhaps you've heard of that. The the historical record of Abraham and Joseph and Judah and Moses and David and all the rest of them, they're all there to point us to Christ. Well, then that means I am not the point of the David story. But here's the thing. David is not the point of the David story. Jesus is. So we have a crisis, and it is the crisis. We need a rescuer. And so, as we've seen, if we're going to look for a rescuer, let's go to the shepherd's field. And that does take us to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read, just for the sake of context, right, right from the beginning, we'll read starting in verse 1. And then we'll begin to talk about our text for this morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and See this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told what, what had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Father, 
I pray that you would increase and I would decrease. I pray that you would knit our hearts closer to you, that we would turn the truth of your word back to you in praise and worship. Amen. All right, so we have a crisis. And in verse 8, we have some shepherds. The shepherds are watching their flocks at night near Bethlehem. And there are a couple of things to consider about the life of a shepherd. And in trying to understand what that might have been like, and, you know, we're living very different lives. I don't think there's any full-time shepherds here. Trying to identify with them a little bit. If you've ever worked in retail particularly, you know, second shift retail, you know a little bit of what they might have been feeling. Because you were working when everybody else, it seemed, was off. Because that's kind of how retail works, right? You need people to be off of work so they can spend their money. And so we need a lot of people to work in retail when everyone else is off. And it may have uh, felt like, you know, everybody else in the world is off of work and they're relaxing, maybe partying, eating, drinking, making merry, and I'm at work. Now, 2,000 years ago outside of Bethlehem, if there was, say, a rich man who was throwing a big banquet, a big celebration in his house, guess who wasn't there? The shepherds, probably. They might have been able to see the lights from the house. They might have been able to hear music and talking and laughing. But they were out with the flocks. And if you've ever worked the graveyard shift, you may have a little bit of an idea of what it may have felt like to be a shepherd. Your day-in, day-out shift is, you know, three, four, five in the morning. Man, that's a bummer. Working night shift, especially in the winter, you know, when it's cold outside. And it just feels like every other soul in the world right now is snuggled up in bed under a blanket and they can close their eyes anytime they want to. That's a lonely feeling, man. And so if you were a shepherd of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, I bet it felt pretty lonely. It would be easy to begin to convince yourself, I am forgotten. But our God does not forget his people. God, in his perfect timing and according to his own perfect will, did not announce the arrival of his son to, say, Caesar or to the high priest or to some rich guy or some powerful, important person according to the understanding of the world. He chose the shepherds of Bethlehem. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Let's 
Let's talk about angels for a moment. Who and what are angels? And I'm going to start out, because this is kind of what I do, I'm going to start out with what angels are not. Angels are not saved dead Christians. Both of my grandmothers have passed away, and I believe that they were, they were believers and are in heaven, but on the day each passed away, heaven did not gain a new angel. Now, when do you hear this? You usually hear this when somebody's family members are in pain and they're mourning, and that is almost certainly not the time to enter into the, this is why you're wrong about the angels rant. Do not stand up at the funeral and interrupt the eulogy and start to explain, you know, a proper biblical understanding of angels. But since this is not a funeral sermon, I will go ahead and say it, that ain't how it works. So I'm going to give you six things about, well, let me back up here. What are angels then? What, is there, can we have some kind of a working definition? And I, I will give you this. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. And to expound on that a little bit, I'm going to give you six things about angels. So number one, it's right there. They are created. They are created beings. So only God... Father, Son, Holy Spirit have always been. And so that does not include the angels. They are created. Number two, angels are personal beings. In other words, they are a who, not just a what. They're not this sort of impersonal, they're not the force, right? That they're not an energy field. They are a who. And apparently they have names like Michael and Gabriel, for example. Number three, they are God's messengers. And if we just look to the previous chapter, chapter one, we see a couple of examples of just that. Number four, they are, in a sense, the soldiers of God's army. Now, this one's a curious one, and we need to be careful with this one. Let me explain to you why. Earthly kings and rulers and presidents and whatever you want to use are powerful and are in power and remain in power because of their armies. So you can say you're the, you know, whatever, king of America, but if all the guys with guns are with the other guy, then you're not. It just comes down to that when it comes to earthly kings, all right? So King Jesus doesn't need anybody's help. The, the, the angel armies of heaven exist to glorify him, but not to keep him on his throne. <laughs> A little different, and let's not, we don't want to confuse the two. Number five, they are powerful. 
way more powerful than anybody in this room. And we get a pretty stark illustration of this when the Assyrian army threatened Judah. The Assyrians were scary, man. I mean, if they came knocking, said, hi, we're taking over, you should just say yes. Because if you didn't and you resisted and when you inevitably lost, it was going to get gruesome. And so the Assyrians threaten Judah and they do an interesting thing. They don't just threaten Judah, but they kind of mock God. Because they'd heard all this before. Everybody had a God or probably usually gods and they believed their gods were going to deliver them and all those people got crushed by the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians tell Judah, don't you think your God's going to deliver you? That's a joke to us. So they mock Judah's God and and let's, let's be clear about this. Oh, by the way, that's the same person who's in the manger in Bethlehem. That same person said, well, okay, Assyrian army, I'm going to send an angel army, an angel army of one angel, and in one night, that one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and then they kind of slunk back home. They're powerful. Number six, last thing about angels, that angels are never to be worshipped. And we do see this throughout Scripture also where angel shows up and they have to stop people. And curiously, it's it's people we would say are like the good guys of the Bible, like people who you want to think would know better, right? They have to say, stop that. Don't do that. Only God is worthy of worship. Now, we could camp out and talk about angels for sermons, but... We're going to leave it at that and and move on, all right? We also read that the glory of the Lord shone around them. And when we consider the glory of God, I think there's wisdom in we, we should embrace what we are given in God's word, and we should be pretty careful about making some, like, detailed explanations or definitions of what I think it is. I'm not that smart, and neither is anybody else, so we're going to go as far as the Bible gives us on the glory of God, and I'm going to stop and then move on, all right? God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. Well, what what does that look like? Well, in Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2, we read, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And then later in that chapter, it it talks about, there's this description of a bright cloud overshadowing them. And in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says this about Jesus himself. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And I'm going to give you one last one here. This is from Revelation 21, 23. 
It says, And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So apparently, there is going to come a time when we won't need the sun. The sun, the S-U-N, fiery ball of gas, the sun. Because of the glory of God emanating from the sun, and that would be the S-O-N, second person of the Trinity, sun, it's going to light our steps and keep us warm and make things grow. Now, I can't give you some, a bunch of specifics about exactly how that's going to work. I don't understand and I don't know how the, you know, the, the photosynthesis 2.0 glory of God version is going to work exactly. But I know I want to be there to see it. All right, at the end of verse 9, the shepherds are terrified. And again, that is the normal pattern when angels show up. In verse 10, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So this also follows a pattern of Scripture. An angel appears, the person is deeply troubled, they are terrified, and the angel says, Fear not. Now I think this pattern should tell us something about our sinfulness when we are faced with something heavenly. Our first emotion is fear or dread. That's interesting. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, this is what is told to us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, wow, this is awesome. Let me double check that. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, by the way, is a major prophet of God. He, he did write a book for future generations, and here we are 2,700 years later, and you've got that book in your lap right now. Kind of a big deal. Isaiah is also corrupt and shady and suffering from the same crisis we all are because he is also a son of Adam. And when faced with the throne of God, he knew I have no business being here. All right, back to Luke, verse 11. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, there it is. We have a crisis. We have the shepherds. And now we have the introduction to the rescuer. And in this introduction, there are three titles given to introduce the rescuer. Each title is important and meaningful. Savior, Christ, Lord. We need a Savior because we are utterly incapable to fulfill the perfect obedience required by the law of God. Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Ephesians, he he leaves no wiggle room. He doesn't offer us some escape hatch. There's no rationalizing this. In in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he says this, And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now you can't get more desperately in need of a savior than being dead. You can't be in more desperate need of a Savior than being hemmed in on every side by the world and the flesh and the devil. The crisis is not only all around us, the crisis is in us. Only a Savior will do. Christ or Messiah is that title given to the one who will be king and rule forever. And not only will he rule, but he will intercede for his people as mediator and high priest. There's some good news. Lord, in this context, is the same as the title Yahweh. It is used to claim all the attributes of God in the rescuer being introduced to these shepherds that night. The crisis is so grave that no one short of God himself will do. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. So the rescuer, who is Savior, Christ, and Lord, is on the scene. What do the shepherds do now? What are they to do with this news? Well, the angel doesn't let them figure it out. He he tells them. It's probably good. Verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You will Find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The implication is clear. Go and find this child. This is how you will know you've got the right one. There were probably a lot of babies around Bethlehem at the time. 
I'm not going to be in a palace. I'm not even going to be in a house. The one laying in the hay feeder. <laughs> Only one of those. And this is an excellent example of how, how unimpressed God is by all our stuff. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, we are impressed with people's stuff. At some point, the house is big enough, the car is amazing enough that we go, whoa. And God just isn't dazzled by our stuff. He doesn't need any of our stuff. There's a difference between being able to glorify God and add to his glory. So all men will do the former one way or another, but none of us can do the latter. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the picture painted here is that there were, well, how many? A lot. Like way too many to count. We'll stick with that number. Way too many to count. And we see something like what John describes in Revelation, where angels are praising and worshiping God. Not only do we have this multitude of angels, but a promise of peace on earth for those favored by God. Well, this is directly addressing the crisis, isn't it? That is very good news. This is a declaration that what was promised back in Genesis 3.15, the promised seed will crush the head of the serpent, it is at hand. The promised seed is here. The one who's going to fix the crisis for his people. And there's some hope for all of us corrupt, shady people all of a sudden. You know that angels rejoice at the rescue of a sinner? We know that for a fact. In Luke 15.10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They, they know that that's happening. Now we're going to see the result of hearing the good news. Look at verse 15. When the, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So four responses to hearing the good news of the rescuer. Number one, they believe the news of the rescuer. Number two, they seek the rescuer. 
Number three, they proclaim the rescuer. And number four, they worship the rescuer. They believe, they seek, they proclaim, and they worship. Now that they believed is implied, but it's obvious. There's no other alternative to the, to, to the fact that they believe. There's no record of doubt like, hey, boys, I don't think we actually saw what we just saw. There's none of that in there. So it's immediate, and then they, they seek the rescuer with haste in verse 16, and then they proclaim the good news of the rescuer in verse 17, and they worship and praise the rescuer in, in verse 20. If a person claims to believe in the rescuer, but doesn't seem too interested in seeking him or proclaiming him or worshiping him, that, that's concerning. There is no such thing as truly knowing Jesus and being known by him, but not being marked by an affection and a desire for him. That's not how it works. Now, to be sure, there may be uh, seasons where your affection is dulled. The, the heat and passion of our faith may have ebbs and flows. That is true. But the idea that, you know, believers, uh, you know, ha have entire lifetimes unmoved to pursue Christ, that's not how it works. So the crisis of sin and shame and death is real, but the rescuer has come. And he came and lived a perfectly obedient, holy life in our place and completely satisfied the requirements of God's law for his people. And he suffered and died on a cross, crushed under the wrath of the, uh, of the Father for the sins of his people. And then three days later, he took up his life again, conquering death for his people. And he sits on his throne, interceding for his people this very day. And now when the father looks on his people, he doesn't see corrupt, shady people. He sees the righteousness of his son. And one day, the rescuer's coming to take us all home. And on that day, we get to join those angels and those who have gone before us, who are not angels, to worship the rescuer face to face. Father, I pray that we recognize the crisis, that we understand the gravity of our sin, but also that we rejoice at the arrival of Jesus Christ, the rescuer. I, I pray that he would be the chief object of our minds, attention, and heart's affection. I, I pray that we would be a people who can approach the throne knowing that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus.
I pray that we would be a people whose, whose lives are marked by a, a hastened seeking of the Son, a, a bold proclaiming of the Son, a joyful praise of the Son. And it is in his name we pray these things. Amen.